Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. And I just want to start off this week by thanking everybody who wrote in to tell me whether or not they wanted to hear an interview with the in-house economist at Wizards of the Coast. The overwhelming answer, in fact, the unanimous answer was yes. Everybody who wrote in told me that they absolutely want to geek out on more Magic the Gathering and hear from the economist who does the math that most mere mortals cannot even conceive of, as Mark Rosewater uh, put it. I am working on that interview, and I promise you, at some point, we will get it in the can. But in the meantime, what do I have on tap for you this week? This episode is going to be about what it's like to start your own think tank. I think that when most people hear that phrase, think tank, they imagine some stodgy institution in Washington, D.C. But there's been this really interesting movement over the last few years where young activists and policy wonks have been founding their own institutions the way someone might have, you know, founded a tech startup or, you know, started a band. They are starting policy shops to kind of press for more progressive change in this country. And one of those is a group called Data for Progress, which was co-founded by Sean McElwee. You might know Sean as a guest on The Gist, Mike Pesca's daily show here at Slate. You might also know him as the guy who popularized the phrase abolish ICE which obviously dominated a lot of conversation about immigration for a good long while. But his group, Data for Progress, has become really well known, even though it's still young, it's still small, as an organization that does polling on progressive policy ideas. Um, It figures out if people really like the idea of forgiving student debt or reparations. It also puts out a lot of its own policy proposals. It produced its own interesting version of the Green New Deal before that was on a lot of people's radars. And so I wanted to hear from him about what it takes to actually start one of these organizations. How the heck do you do it? And what do you actually do with your day besides tweet? Anyway, I thought it was a fun conversation. Hope you enjoy. What's your name and what do you do? I'm Sean McElwee, and I'm a co-founder of Data for Progress, the Uh, leading progressive think tank in uh, the United States. All right. So, Sean. And possibly the world. (laughs) Quite possibly the world. So We are leading if you measure us in terms of retweets per tweet. Is that your metric? We we scrape all of the tweets from all the think tanks. (laughs) And yes, Center for American Progress does have a budget that is 100 times larger than us. But we do get more retweets per tweet than them. It's like a baseball or a basketball efficiency rating kind of thing. Like, is that the... Is oh, it... yeah. If you were to have like, like think tanks above replacement, yeah. <laughs> it's... I welcome the sabermetrics. Have you ever gone to a donor and said, this is how many retweets we get? <laughs> yeah, it's in our deck. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. So for listeners, 
You guys may have noticed that this doesn't sound like a typical working interview. I, I should give some background. Sean, when did when did we first get to know one another? I, I it must have been back in like 2013 when you were pitching me stuff from Demos, right? Or 2014? Yeah, yeah when I was at Demos, I developed a sort of interesting way into sort of like the elite commentariat, um, <laughs> which was I would harass you on Twitter and then I would like pitch you on stories. That actually was a pretty good, I was an editor back then. That worked pretty well. That was also what Matt Brunick did a little bit of. Yeah, because there's this like liberal guilt where you're like, ah, if I don't publish him, it'll seem like it's because like he's harassing me. <laughs> so, and yeah, no, it, it worked like it worked. Uh, that's how I got into the New York Times too. <laughs> so now you run Data for Progress, which I mean, boasting aside, is one of the major players in the think tank game. Right? I would say that. I mean, yeah, in the progressive think tank game. Yeah. But I mean, I think like the progressive think tank game is important on account of Democrats like occasionally do hold power. But what I'd say is, is like we are social media obsessed. Like here's a little working fact. I still run the Twitter account and I do not plan to like ever not run the Twitter account because it's so central to sort of how we are seen by the media because you media people are the people who like determine American narratives and, and politics. And you've decided to spend seven or eight hours a day like glued to Twitter. And so like if you're a think tank and you're like shopping it off to like a social media intern, right? Like you are shopping off the central mechanism through which Matt Iglesias will like interact with your ideas. Yeah. Um, so I'm obsessed with the social. And like one of the things that I love to go through is like the Day of Progress feed. And you'll see like people really engage with our content organically. Like yeah. you go to another think tank and you'll see like one retweet. Um, with us, it's like our sort of meaty content has, you know, 50, 60, 70. Some of our reports have 200 retweets. And then our memes have, you know, thousands sometimes because like this is the central way through which people will see us. And like, I, I'm surprised that more people haven't done it. Like I, I'm obsessed with like Twitter cards. Like one, one afternoon, I was just like, "Oh, our Twitter cards look ugly," and like I figured out how to do like pretty Twitter cards. And then yeah. like, I did a style. What, what guide is it? Like, what is a Twitter card for? So on Twitter, like the way that your tweets pop up. Yeah, yeah. So like we write in a set of code that we inject into all of our blogs, so it does the big Twitter card instead of the small Twitter card. Yeah, and then we make sure the pictures are like perfect, and then like the little write up. And like, I get really mad about that. I like, I check all of our blogs before they go out. I like make sure like that I'm like comfortable with the subhead and stuff like that. Okay. So this is getting to the question that yeah. I brought you in here for, because, you know, again, I'm, I'm part of the media and I talked to you about, you know, what you're doing at, at data for progress or what you guys are working on. But fundamentally I have no fucking clue what you do with your time. Mostly <laughs> like, oh, yeah? I'm, I'm just like, this is what I want to know is if you are running a think tank, sure. If, like, what is your daily life? What is it? Apparently, it's a lot of trying to reach me on Twitter <laughs> or trying to reach Matt Iglesias. But what is your life? What is your week? Do you know the sort of uh, story of uh, Fidel Castro in the New York Times? No. There's this story and apparently like a New York Times reporter goes to like hang out with Fidel and shit before the revolution. And he like Fidel like sits the reporter in a cave and he like looks out and then like walks the same hundred troops by him like over and over again over and over again and the new york times reporter goes back to to the united states is like fidel has a master army 
I think I see where this is going. And like, that's what media is in America. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So your job as a think tanker is to march that army past me over and over again. Yeah. um, Those hundred troops. (laughs) No, but more seriously, like there were some think tank presidents, I won't name names or whatever, but who were like always posting on Twitter. And like, I'm like genuinely like day to day. I'm like, how the fuck are you doing this? Because like, I don't know, like if you follow my Twitter a lot, but, like I've like definitely not posted as much. Um, yeah. I mean, there running were, an organization requires an incredible amount of work. It does. Well, so, I mean, yeah, I, you posted a lot during the abolish ice days, right? When that was sort of your big thing. You were the the popularizer of abolish ice. And I've noticed you've sort of tailed off a little bit since then. On on Twitter, yeah. I mean, like this is sort of it's always been my obsession. Like I think I've mentioned it like a Columbia journalism review piece, but like my view of left politics is eventually like we've got to like butter motherfuckers breads and stuff my dream i've always been obsessed with like institutions right like we have to build these institutions and my dream is like to build an institution where like someone can come to the institution like get a job there like have a child like do maternity or paternity leave and like come back and that institution exists and like that's a lot of work, yeah. right? Like that's a lot of resources. It's an incredibly difficult task to build. And, um, you know, I've been invested in left politics for a long time and there's no really like handbook, right? Like yeah. J- Jacobin is a great magazine. They have like the journal, like the Catalyst Journal, but like the Catalyst Journal, like can't tell you like how to build an institution. And so, you know, when you start thinking about those types of questions, it becomes a very different game. And it, it turns out it's something like I'm, I'm decently skilled at and I really enjoy doing. I really enjoy building an institution. And like I try to, to the extent possible, to, you know, get back into the data. So how did you even get involved in the think tank world to begin with? Like where was your start in that? What's like your, your, your creation story? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was a chubby kid. <laughs> which I assume is obvious on account of I'm a chubby adult. And so I wasn't like that good at sports, but I was like decent at like debating. And I did like debate all throughout like high school and through much of college. And I sort of was always interested, like, what if we like, what if I was like debating as like a job? Um, and like, so I heard of think tanks and I was like, oh, that's that sounds like debating as a job. Like, that's very interesting to me. Um, was that in college? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I, I did a, I did a variety of, uh, of internships. I'm sure people who dislike me are aware that I, I at one point was at the Reason Institute. Um, I was oh, not. Really? I did yeah, not know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't like a. Just uh, for listeners who don't keep track of all this, that's libertarian. Yeah, it's libertarian. I mean, I grew up in a in a pretty evangelical family. I wasn't like an Ayn Rand libertarian. I was like, as a young person, I read like Thomas Sowell's book. Okay, and like yeah. libertarian thinking is very appealing because it's a very simple set of beliefs that you can like hold and there it's very easy to hold those beliefs until they come into the reality of like the world and so like means college is a good time for it yeah yeah i mean i had a friend i had like friends who you know in my social circle um from high school who like didn't end up going to college and it wasn't like through their fault of their own it was like you know some of my friends like had family members who were, you know, addicted to drugs and like had to basically raise their own siblings and stuff. And it's like when you see that, it's like, huh, that's really hard to like square with like a libertarian theory of the case. And 
So, you know, definitely began to to move in a more progressive direction. Uh, after that, I was sort of like, I did a big like senior thesis in college on inequality and opportunity and how those are related. And it's been a set of work that's been very interesting to me throughout throughout my career. And in doing that type of work, I sort of moved to a more like very class focused school of like left thought. And then I was, I was really lucky. And like to this day, I, I can't really explain how this happened, but I got a internship at, at Demos, um, which yeah. is a progressive think tank in New York. And it was like, really, I mean, amazing opportunity. And Demos was just transitioning presidents. So Heather McGee became the president. And she really was sort of focused on Demos moving past. Well, I wouldn't say moving past, like sort of taking the sort of labor left roots of the organization that was really centered in like a union inequality style of thinking in towards like a sort of racial equity yeah. understanding of progressive politics. And so like I sort of like really was schooled in that tradition and it sort of ended up being very prescient um, how Demos sort of adopted that style of thinking as the 2016 election unfolded. What made you then strike out on your own? I think like there are th- there was this sense for for me that there was this new generation of progressive thought and that we had something to say and we didn't yet have institutions to say it and who were like accountable to young people and who were invested in the sort of like next generation of politics, right? Like, so a lot of the organizations we look work with are like groups like Indivisible, Justice Democrats, you know, Working Families Party now has a, a very young president, right? You know, Justice Democrats, uh, the president there, Alex Rojas is, uh, I believe, uh, 26 or 27. Ocasio-Cortez is, you know, yeah. 29. Like, so there was just like this sense like, We definitely need a new set of institutions now. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. When did you officially start Data for Progress? Oh, God. Uh, it started as just like a name. Yeah. Uh, this is the dirtiest little, this is the dirtiest secret. I, the name's really great, right? Like, I yeah. feel like people just like, damn, Data for Progress, what a great name. Uh, someone once thought we were an arm of the Center for American Progress, which was kind of funny. But it's, I mean, that's not a, that's not a crazy leap. <laughs> it's like, not, a, no. Yeah. I wanted to like name it the Greek word for data. No, and then that, Colin was like, Sean, there are like 3,000 data consultancies that have that name. Colin's your Colin partner. McAuliffe. Yeah, yeah. yeah your partner. He, so, uh, you were, so you guys were sitting around saying, let's start a think tank. 
I mean, like, is this like a DIY band kind of like it was like, yeah, how, yeah. How, take me inside, like how you guys said it's time for think tank. And when was this exactly like that? It's time to. to it, yeah. Yeah. So the basic, I think, way that's best to understand it coming out is like I became very interested in a statistical technique called multi-level regression and post-stratification, MRP. And the interesting thing about MRP was that it allows you to take national level survey results and create estimates at the state level by basically forming a hierarchical model that includes the geographic predictors and the individual level predictors. And if you'll recall, in 2016, Democrats won nationally, uh, but did not win because of the Electoral College. And polling didn't really do a good job of telling us that. And so I became very interested in like techniques that did a better job of like disaggregating geographies. Mm -hmm. And multi-level regression and post-stratification is still something data for progress is constantly thinking about working on improving. I also had a sense that the because I, I did a lot of, when I was at Demos, I did a lot of like survey research using yeah. like the American National Election Studies, Cooperative Congressional Election Studies, ETC, ETC. And I became very frustrated because a lot of the questions that I am very interested in as a leftist and a socialist are not asked on American public opinion surveys. So I was like, wow, it would be very good to like own and control the means of survey production. So Colin reached out to me and he was like, hey, I... I can do MRP. And I did I did not meet Colin for months until after we started. And we started working on building this this MRP model and we started to get it, you know, uh, sort of early versions of it in in early 2018. And you were you were building that model before you had a think tank. It was yeah, like yeah, this yeah. was this was you guys just working together on a model. And so what we basically did was we would go around to organizations who had done survey research and we would say, can you give us the micro data so we can fit the model on it? Yeah. And we started fitting the model. And then I reached out to John Green, who was a fellow like online shit poster, um, <laughs> who who sort of quit the game and went to Ohio State. And so the first thing we ever did was we took Kaiser Family Foundation data on uh, Medicare for all and we fit a multi-level regression. And then we took cooperative congressional election studies data on Medicaid expansion. Yeah. And we did a piece for Mike.com mm -hmm. on like Medicaid expansion was popular. And to do that, like we like came up with this name and everything was done by email now. And we we now have like a Slack that cost me like $5,000 a year. But um, everything was done by email and we came up, we invented a name. And then we like literally like bought the domain and just like threw up data for progress. And we initially did dataforprogress.com and it's now dataforprogress.org. And I think like dataforprogress.com I think it just like redirects to dataforprogress.org. But yeah, so that was the the beginning. And then the first three months was just like, how do we get some, how do we convince someone to get us enough money to like actually start running a survey? And, you know, we ended up, I, I had a lot of friends in the progressive spaces. And so like, I sort of was like, hey, you know, like what if we field the survey? Um, and they were like, oh, you know, you're probably going to want to use like a sort of established vendor. You can cut out all the analysis costs, but it, you need to get it from a reputable panel because people won't believe you. So we used YouGov. Yeah. And um, the first poll we actually did. And like, there's a reason like I, I run the operations now is because I don't think 
uh, John and Colin can assume this sort of risk just emotionally and <laughs> mentally. Uh, we, we commissioned our first poll before we had money to pay for it. Um, and, <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I figured we would just eventually get the money and then we would pay for the poll. Um, and what's the, what's the worst? You've got a nonprofit. Had you we, created a nonprofit? No, at that point we were just like an LLC. Wait, um, wait. So you, oh, but you had limited liability at that point. Yeah. yeah we, were, we were an okay. LLC. So if um, it, it's okay if you go bankrupt. It's fine. It's yeah, not, yeah. Yeah. You had no money to begin with. And so, yeah, we had, we had like a, we started an LLC and yeah, we, we did the first poll and it was like, I don't know, like, you know, old school, that would be dumb, but like new school, like that's what MoviePass did. Yeah, and, no, well, I mean, <laughs> let's let's maybe that's not the comparison sure. you want to draw. But so you guys were faking it till you made it, basically. I mean, it was a startup model, but in this case, it's a think tank instead of you know uh, an app. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it was very much like into this day, like you know, we have like fellows and like I, I'm sort of like a, like just imagine me as like creating a think tank, but like with all of the trappings of a normal think tank, but like I just like. Uh, I treat it, I don't know, like everything Tanks Fellows Program is just like friends of the person who runs it, right? So like that's what our Fellows Program is, but they're younger yeah. and and cool and like have fresh ideas. Well, that's also what's smart about that is if you have someone whose ideas you like, but they have no institutional affiliation, you can automatically give them more cred with the press by just saying they're a fellow at this think tank. Yeah, exactly. And so um, that's that's kind of the game there. Yeah, exactly. Like we've had some like really cool papers that came out just because like we were the only people who would publish them. Um, there's like a guy named Max Casey who did this amazing paper on the EITC. And I'd always like sort of jokingly like had this joke where like the way you get UBI is you call it EITCX. Um, and then he like actually wrote <laughs> that. the paper for us. And so like it's a it's on the site. But like, yeah, we were able to just like suck up like tons and tons of of interest and like folks really wanted to to do work and like you know publish these papers with us and so it's like you know the the slow boring of hard bores well it also seems like there's it's sort of like a there was like a hole in the market right like you had more progressive more left wing policy talent academic talent out there than there were institutions willing to published that, like you had the Roosevelt Institute and CAP was sort of, Center for American Progress is considered a little bit more moderate and more DC establishment focused. So you guys were sucking up that free talent. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And there's another thing that was just like sort of necessitated by the way that the organization came together, which is like, if you're normally building an institution, like you make a deck and then you go to like rich people and you're like, hey, rich people, like... You should make this happen. Whereas with us, we're sort of like, like I don't know a lot of rich people. And so what we had to do is we had to build the thing and then go to rich people and be like, hey, this is a pretty cool thing we built, right? Like you should make sure we keep the lights on. And we've always seen seen it that way. And to this day, like people who advise us on fundraising are sort of confused because we almost have like a an investment model where I invest some of the the stuff we do for, we get resources to do sets of work. And then I invest some of that into a new set of work I want to do. And then like build up that set of work and then say like, hey, you should like fund this to go further because I don't like the idea of like rich people telling me what to do. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, that's a constant problem with think tanks, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. They have their pet project that they will fund. And this is, that's a way around that. Like we started this, and this is just a crazy set of data work like 
compiling tons and tons of um, election results because we built like an ecological inference model that runs off the voter file to basically create exit polls based on precinct level results. So the model basically scores individuals within the precinct um, on a zero to 100 scale. And then you can use that to like basically create a sort of sense of how people voted. And so we started building this. And the reason we actually built it was entirely for me to win online debates that I had had about (laughs) suburban voters' political views. Because I was like, well, we know it in surveys, but I guess like, to prove it, like we would have to like actually do ballot initiative studies. So, I love it. Like a Twitter spat actually leads to straight up think tank work for you guys. Oh yeah, like we spent many thousands of dollars like litigating my my feuds, <laughs> and so we sort of like looked around and we couldn't find it. So I was just like, I built it, and then I I emailed one of our friends of the tank, and I was like, Hey, we're gonna do this, and they said like, Do you have funding for it? And I said like, If I asked <laughs> rich people for permission before we did everything, like where would we be? And so like that's I think like that's a interesting new way to do things because I do think that organizations, you know, there's a sort of there's a sort of left critique of like the donor relationship as sort of having like an ideological valiance. Yeah. And my actual view on this is mostly that it has a small C conservative valiance, which is that people feel afraid to try new things because you want to stick to like the tried and true. And what I think a lot about is like, how do we solve very specific problems that organizations are facing and sort of like build that capacity for them and then sort of like build it and then say like, look what we've done. Cue, fund more of this. Exactly. I want to come back to the donors in a minute, but at this point, how many people actually work for Data for Progress? Like our employees thereof? Uh, We mostly have contractors who... And it's like mostly people who are in tenure at a university or on staff at a university who, for our policy stuff, we have them do like a like report or a brief on an issue that means a lot to them. And what we do is we supplement it with polling or we build a partnership with like a group like the Justice Collaborative, which has incredible work that they do, but they don't really have the sort of like ability to do polling on the work that they do or wouldn't know how to do it if they wanted to. So they sort of come to us with the policies and we trust them. Yeah. And then we build upon that. Uh, but actually, we have two employees now. Is that including you and, and Colin? Uh, no, Colin is actually not an employee. <laughs> okay. He has like a real job. He's Yeah. It's uh, Julian Noisecat who oversees all of our Green New Deal strategy. And then Brittany Bennett, who oversees our work on automatic voter registration Mm -hmm. and also works with us on on grant making. And then we have an in-house like fellow who uh, is Kate Aronoff. And then we have a wide range of of other fellows. And then we have people who like do stuff on contract, but like have other gigs. I also have like other gigs because like Data for Progress doesn't like pay a lot of salary. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I, I like do take a small stipend, but I still have to do like other work to to support myself um, because like we really want to invest everything in building the organization. And I think it's worth noting like people are sort of interested like, you know, you would think data for progress would hire like a data scientist before someone like Julian. But yeah. I took a really different approach to that. My view was we're doing this work on the Green New Deal and we're doing like a lot of policy and survey work. But there's a famous quote, people don't know care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
And so having someone like Julian who can actually build authentic relationships with organizations on the ground such that they trust our data, they want to hear more from us is actually much more important right now um, than anything else we could be investing in building. So And so Julian's like, he's fundamentally an organizer. That's sort of. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone at Data for Progress has multiple hats. Yeah. Um, that's just sort of a, my understanding of the uh, startup world in the private sector is, is similar. Um, the lots of hats type of situation. But yeah, I mean, Julian is a, is an organizer. Um, he's He's been on the ground for uh, many of the pipeline protests, uh, but he is also a strategist. He is also a very effective communicator, and he is uh, actually an incredibly effective policy thinker as well. Um, I think people sometimes don't think of activists and policy, but some of the smartest policy thinkers I've met have been activists. And, and I think that's true of Julian. I mean, he went on the weeds and I think he had a very good interview with uh, Iglesias. Yeah. Just, so for, I want to kind of like try to almost, you know, verbally diagram out what we're talking about with Data for Progress when, when, when behind the name, behind the you know yeah. online presence, you've got an organization that is two, two main employees they're, and they're kind of the organizing front of it. And there's you, you're kind of the head of it but you're not taking a salary. You're kind of, you're, it's, it's your project. You've got Colin also, who sort of has a real job. Um, and then John you also has a, yeah. A, and so, and then you have this network of people doing papers and data analysis for you. And you're kind of funding all that freelance stuff to kind of keep the ideas flowing. Yeah. It's like, uh, and I do take a stipend. Yeah. And then we have, um, yeah, so we have, the core, like most of the, the money is like for building out, like data is costly. Yeah. Um, that's so the, and that's what the polling, data. That you're paying pollsters to go on and do all that. Well, yeah. So we have the voter file yeah. and then we have polling, but we have a sort of non-traditional relationship with the pollsters in that like we ask to receive the raw data yeah right the product that we are not we are looking for is not like a set of like memos or a slide deck yeah right? i want the data that we can analyze and sort of like run regressions on and stuff like that that's sort of a non-traditional relationship yeah and it costs less money on your end too because yeah. they you don't they don't have to put the man hours in to do all that yeah, yeah and then we and we are increasingly you know like it's not incredibly hard to to run your own survey um the big problem is like people many people still sort of like don't don't like us and sort of discount our, our data for that and and I know that that's something that's true which is why we're actually much faster in terms of putting raw data on the internet so that people can explore it we're obsessed with that um very few people do put the raw data up we often put like the raw data up like so fast it's like bad for us because like people will dig into our data and find like cool findings that like we could have found ourselves if we had not put it out so early but um we're really committed to that transparency and we we really do end up having to have a higher quality you know panel for, for the results we produce there are lots of organizations that have more established names who use what is in my opinion local lower quality panels but they can do that because you know, they're not seen as like scrappy. 
but you know we definitely have the capacity and we we sometimes do for internal purposes uh field our own surveys on on other panels but yeah at the end of the day journalists like knowing that it was from a high quality panel politicians who were trying to persuade to our view like knowing it was from a high quality panel and one of the funniest things is like people are always like oh data for progress like skews the results and from my perspective we actually make a several decisions in-house that do not. Um, for example, we have a support, somewhat strongly support, somewhat support, neither support nor oppose, somewhat oppose, strongly oppose, not sure. If we were to get rid of the neither support or oppose or the don't know, we would end up with more progressive results because the people who tend to choose the neither support nor oppose uh, disproportionately women and women tend to have more liberal views. So if you could have those people instead choosing the progressive position, you would have a higher support for your policy. We don't, we, I mean, you can look at the way we word questions. I work really, really hard to um, word our questions in in a fair way. Um, we're doing a big Medicare for all project that's going to come out soon. And I spent an entire day basically calling up economists to try, try to figure out like specific payroll tax raises that would be necessary to fund Medicare for all so that the question wording would actually reflect actual policy reality. You know, the work we've done with Civis, we've had like, we explicitly say Democrats are opposing this. We offer arguments for it and against it. And uh, when things are expensive, I include taxes to to pay for them because the conservative movement, in my view, went off the rails because they created an alternative reality for themselves. And so we want to be in the reality as it exists. And when you say a high quality panel, right? Yeah. that means a high quality pollster. That means like YouGov or what, what does that mean exactly? Sure. So polling used to be done mostly on phones. Yeah. Right. Uh, less and less. Is that true? So more and more people use online panels, which is like market research companies will create panels of people okay. who are within the panel. And who then they can like sort of induce to take surveys for, you know, like Amazon gift cards or something like that. You know, Harvard has created their own online panel, small online panel. So in those panels are, are tested. Pew has done studies of online panels um, to sort of see how balanced they are demographically, um, how well they're maintained. And a good panel vendor will be very obsessed with like making sure that their panel is well balanced. And they'll append a lot of variables to yeah. the individual respondents on the panel, which is very useful. So, you know, we we do use the YouGov panel. We uh, trust the civics yeah. panel. I think Drew Linzer has done a lot of great work. You go to the company, you go to civics, you go to YouGov, and you say, here's our survey. These are the questions we want to ask. You guys conduct it. We're going to pay you to conduct it, and then you're getting the data back from them, and you're making what you will of it. Yeah. And that's, again, it's a little bit more DIY than a lot of other think tanks, I guess, because they're not necessarily, they're usually commissioning the report back or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I will say that uh, in some of our other projects, we we actually have asked YouGov for for help with the, the write-ups. And honestly, oftentimes it's a, it's a capacity issue. Mm-hmm. Um, from our end, I have much less time than I can spend firing up a... Uh, firing up the this data. But yeah, that's a, that's exactly correct. And the other thing is, is like in a lot of instances, you'll want voter file matches. And What's the voter file? for? Oh yeah, sure. So the modern political campaign is run off of voter file. 
the secretaries of states of, uh, of all states maintain these voter files. You can purchase them. And increasingly on both the Republican and Democratic side, there are um, probably like two to three vendors that sort of take these voter files and are constantly purchasing from the secretaries of states, updating them, um, and then appending lots and lots of stuff yeah. to the voter files. So, um, Like this person is black, middle class, et cetera, that kind of data, college uh, yeah. educated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mostly through some sort of model, zero to 100. You know, in some states, your race is on the voter file. In other states, it's not. In some cases, you'll have commercial data that you can get and append to the voter file. Um, and in some cases, it is a probabilistic model based on your last name and the census block that you live in, and then as much other information as the the vendor can gather about you. So yeah, so we we will sometimes want the survey respondents match back the voter file so that we can um, use that to to do modeling. All right, it's Monday. Yeah. What are you up to? Oh, so what time, um, what time do you get up? I normally get up around like nine thirty or ten. All right. Um, I work from home. So like I cut out that whole commute. Yeah. You know, like most people, they have a commute in the morning. I don't. I just like get up and I fire up Twitter, fire up my computer. Oh, God, I, in the old days, more and more. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, I got to get that email. Oh, um, God. I have a three, three computer screens. I think that's the only way that a human being should engage with the uh, the online. Wait, so three? Yeah. What are they tr- for? I get two, but you have like the full like kind of banker setup. Is that the? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have my laptop in the middle and then two yeah. screens on the other side. Uh, normally one will be like email, uh, one will be like Slack, and then one will be like Twitter or my calendar. Yeah. Because, you know, like a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls. Yeah. I try to walk whenever I'm on the phone, pace a little bit, get some exercise in. But yeah, I wake up I wake up around 10 or 9 or 10, closer to 10 normally, and sometimes a little later than that. I try not to schedule any calls before 11. Uh, I try to keep Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday like relatively call-free, but normally still we'll have four or five calls that off the hop on in those days. And then it's like really throughout the day, it's going to be a lot of Slack, a lot of email. So I am very meticulous about the surveys uh, and the instruments. It, it ends up taking us a little longer to field sometimes just because I I will constantly like go back and want to like tweak it and make sure it's it's good. Uh, we do bigger surveys. Um, bigger surveys are cheaper to run. So mm-hmm. we try to put a lot of stuff on those. And online web panels have allowed for surveys to become a little bit lengthier. And so a, a very decent chunk of my time is going to be survey stuff. A very decent chunk of my time is going to be working on the the media stuff. You know, reporters will have a lot of questions, yeah. stuff about our, our, our work. We aim to have one major release every week. This week, we'll, we'll have two the first was we released a memo on pharmaceutical pricing and yeah. and sort of support for um, generic options and uh, support for Medicare negotiating with pharmaceutical companies. And then there's a lot in terms of getting a sense of like building partnerships. You know, I, I make sure I, I read everything we put out before it goes out to, you know, just like make sure we are firmly within where the progressive movement is thinking on these sorts of sorts of issues. But yeah, it is a lot of uh, management type stuff. What is the single activity that takes up the biggest share of your week? Oh, is it emailing? Just emailing. And phone calling. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been like, I've been doing better at that, but like, you know, there was a time where it was just like, I would have so many phone calls. Like I would just take everything. It's really just like so much stuff comes up. Cause like I, I'm like very hands-on obviously. I don't really want to not be hands-on though. Yeah. Either. Um, but like, yeah, I mean like I do our tweets. I like check over all of our surveys. We have a memes consultant. You have um, a memes consultant? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I do I do in house most so of the like, memes. Is it like a seventeen year old somewhere? Like, what was your meme consultant? The memes consultant is like a very famous Twitter personality, um, who also she's like, I I will like literally like hit them up and be like, hey, um, can I get some memes of like Nathan for you? <laughs> I did the good. I did the really recent though Nathan for you one that was really funny. I did that one, but yeah, like I'll like hit up the memes consultant. Um, yeah, like just making sure like everything is moving. Yeah. It's like that is so much work. It's just like making sure like we have we have we have like f- six or seven reports right now that are in the hopper just slowly moving forward, making sure, you know, all of our stuff that comes out is, you know, firmly progressive. I make sure we're not canceled. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of oh, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to not be canceled uh, as an organization. How much of your time do you spend trying to court donors? Oh, not enough. If you ask, <laughs> okay. um, if you ask our some of our friends, how do you even do that? How do you find a donor? Oh man, how do you go hunt donor hunting? Tricks of the trade. So first off, we do have a small dollar donor base. We're really invested in that. I think it's important, and I've explored a ton in terms of fundraising models. I'm I'm constantly thinking about it because at the end of the day, it's the lifeblood of an organization. But I do think that think tanks have a lot of trouble having a large small dollar donor base. For whatever reason, like Democratic small dollar donors are much more invested in like supporting like, you know, a, a Warren or a Bernie or a Kamala uh, than they are in supporting a sort of think tank. And I think that is intuitive. Um, think so, tank's not going to win an election as far as they're concerned. They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's not a team to root for. Yeah. So what we've mostly found is that Donors are really interested in the sort of work we do on narrative change and the work we do on supporting other organizations in terms of capacities that they might not necessarily have in-house, yeah. right? So we do almost all of our polling, and I would probably say like all with like very rare exceptions, like at no cost point of service to the organization who's asking us to run the polling. It's sort of a weird model, but like it sort of makes sense when you think about it. Like I don't have an accounting team to like harass you until you pay me. Um, and it's not really worth my time to do so. Yeah. So we'll just do it. You're accumulating goodwill. Yeah, exactly. So we'll just do it. And if you like what we've done, we'll do more. When you're actually trying to find a guy who will give you money, is it, well, I've heard this wealthy person gave money to this think tank and we're sort of similar to them. And so maybe he'd be interested in us. Is it word of mouth? Is there a secret list somewhere that like, <laughs> everyone, you laugh nervously. He tugs, no, he's not tugging his collar. I'm kidding. But this is, how do you do that? Yeah, I go to, uh, what is the uh, Alex Jones thing where all the rich people meet up? Oh yeah, um, Bohemian Grove. Right? Yeah, I go to is Bohemian it, Grove. Yeah, just find them all hanging there. We have a very close friend of the tank who I once asked, like, oh, what do we do to get, like, more donors more invested in data progress? And he said, you should fire yourself. And he was, like, being a meanie. Um, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> it should be clear, like, anyone who thinks, like, we're, like, you know, like, chilling out with rich people, like, 
I'm a socialist because I don't like hanging out with rich people. Um, and I still am very bad at doing the like hanging out with rich people part of the, the stuff. So what we tend to basically have is like people who really like what Data for Progress does are like, you should give money to Sean. <laughs> they really need it. And also like Sean will never ask you because he's too proud. Um, no, but like, it, it, I mean, like, like that's part of it. But like we definitely, we have a sort of like core set of competencies that I think people mm-hmm. are interested in and people like sort of want to support our ability mm-hmm. to, you know, pull on a lot of these progressive policies. And so we sort of like had folks who were like, hey, you know, like you should really give data progress money to like do some polling on criminal justice issues. And we've done some great polling on criminal justice issues. So is there, is there sort of deal. like an element of, of rich guys saying, we don't like you, but we like what you do? <laughs> I think that there's also been a shift. And yeah. like, to be clear, like one of the very good things about data progress is like, we don't, we're like not expensive. Like we don't have to like pay for rent and stuff like that. Yeah. So it means that like, we don't have to spend a ton of time raising money because we just like don't need that much of it. Your and, co- your cost per tweet is very yeah low. exactly that, like that's why I like don't spend that that much time and I can be like kind of bad at it. And also because like there was like a, a quote I once said in BuzzFeed about like the Radiohead and people like I think misunderstood it. What I meant was like people who Wait, like what, what was the quote I said like we're like Radiohead for donors like people know we're like good but they don't know why. Okay, because like I think that's that's my interpretation of Radiohead. What I mean by that is that we, like, we don't really change. I don't change what we're going to do because of rich people. And so if you like what we're doing, like, support it. But, like, you know, like, we're not, like, we don't really want support that has strings attached. And because we don't need that much money, we can, like, be at that level. And because the people who are interested in the work we're doing are really interested in the work we're doing, there's no worry about like sort of like, you know, intervening in in the work that we're doing or like us doing something and like them getting mad. Like, you know, data for progress is what it is. If you're interested in it, like, you know what you're getting into. Do you ever have to put on a suit and tie though and like go do the presentation and like kind of pretend? I don't have a suit. You're- like I this is like a, like I don't I don't have a suit. I like I actually like I, I actually testified in like the New York State Senate. And like the night before, I like bought a sport coat. I remember I had a meeting like that, and the person was like, "Oh, do you have like a like a a, a deck for me or something like that?" And I was like, "Oh, I just thought we were like gonna chill and like you know talk about data for progress." But yeah, like I I'm like really bad at that type of thing, and I don't really like spending time doing it. I like what really makes me happy is like you know like working to make the organization stronger and better and you know building our reputation relationship with with other organizations i i find all of that sort of like schmoozing stuff to like it just like it uh, to be entirely huge waste of time you said you do side gigs to support your yeah yeah what what are some of the side gigs well i do the polling for take back the courts yeah uh time to expand the court yeah i should do a pitch court expansion is a great idea (laughs) Um, yeah, so I do, I do yeah. their, I do their polling, work with them a little on the, the media. So you do some of the stuff that you would ordinarily, with the data for progress ordinarily do, but you, it's sort of, you do it for other think tanks and not under your own brand. Yeah. Yeah. So like I am the director of polling at Take Back the Courts. Yeah. So 
Sean McAwee, who's director of polling at the APAC courts, and Sean McAwee, who is uh, co-founder of Day of Progress, are different people. But, uh, you know, like... It's Clark Kent and Superman. <laughs> right. Like, the it's, the Take Back the Course polling yeah. does not come out under the Data for Progress brand. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, work with them in terms of, like, doing sort of, like, polling and research on on the court. And and I don't know how much you've, like, engaged with my my writing, but, you know, for, for about five years, I've, I've had, like, a little bit of some thoughts on the Supreme Court and I've been... A few a few thoughts. Yeah, yeah, I've been blessed to be able to like sort of put those into practice. Well, so, sort of specific practical points about the Supreme Court. Like I have a tracking poll on opinion about John Roberts and I also, I have a tracking poll on views of the court in terms of whether it's a political institution or a constitutional institution and I work to change those and it's, it's very fun. And I, I advise the demand justice on the at the beginning on their court work as well. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You guys worked pretty hard on automatic voter registration in New York. Was that basically your first real legislative push? AVR. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know it's a little painful, but I want I want to talk about- We got about, uh, a binding press release, if that's- <laughs> you got, So that's, I want to talk about this because, you know, I, I think this is also a mystery to people. Is how do you actually try to push an idea out to a legislator? How do you work with politicians? I mean, like, yeah. where, tell me about how you guys got involved in that issue and how you took it up as like, where, where was the start of that? So I live in New York. New York came very close to passing automatic voter registration. We'll do so next year in January. So automatic voter registration builds upon the National Voter Registration Act. So yeah. the National Voter Registration Act was passed in Bill Clinton's presidency, signed into law by Bill Clinton. And that requires public agencies uh, such as DMVs, uh, Medicaid offices, to offer an individual a chance to register to vote when they interact with those agencies. And since the NVRA, we have moved to an, a world in which the modal person is registered at a DMV um, yeah. rather than their board of elections. So all automatic voter registration does is to change whether that is an opt-in to an opt-out. Uh, There are two forms of this. One is you opt out at the point of service, which is the DMV or Medicaid office, which is what California has, Colorado used to have. And one is the model that Oregon has and and Colorado now has, which is you opt out through a mailer after the transaction. I've been very interested in automatic voter registration for a long time. Uh, I did a lot of research on automatic voter registration at Demos. When I was at Demos, we published, I believe, the first study Uh, examining the demographics of who's registered to vote with automatic voter registration. And so once New York had a trifecta, uh, was very interested in seeing seeing that through. So we worked very closely with- And trifecta uh, means once the Democrats took uh, over all the- 
Yes, yeah. we used Once. to have the uh, Independent Democratic Conference. We had a screwed up situation in New York is basically where Republicans held control over a chamber, even though technically Democrats had the majority. But yes. yeah. So once we got rid of that, this was an opportunity to try and push through a reform that would probably mean more registered, more New Yorkers registered. Yeah, many more registered New Yorkers. And we worked very closely with Senator Gianaris, and he was a very strong advocate. And I still believe like we will. Uh, so, but was this something where the politicians brought it to you and said, we need help with this, or you brought it to the politicians? We, so I met with Senator Gianaris uh, shortly after Democrats took the state Senate. And I think to the extent that we could take any credit for anything, it was really working to impress upon the senator, like the importance of automatic voter registration as a, as a priority. And I think that there's, it's definitely true that he was much more engaged and, and saw the issue much more centrally to his agenda because of the work of, you know, Data for Progress, which is under uh, the organization AVR now, um, for sure. And we, we met with like a lot of legislators. We walked them through how, a lot how of did, concerns. How did like you that. even get that meeting? How do you get into the office in the first place? Yeah, this is like sort of like the a weird secret about like, everything we do, which is like, how am I in the room with a lot of people? Um, <laughs> yeah. How uh, the hell did you get there? <laughs> I, I don't really know. It's mostly been like, I sort of just asked. <laughs> did, you send, did you send an email? Yeah. I mean, like, what was the... Yeah. So I was doing work on the No IDC Coalition during the that time. And so I had like, I had a conversation with the, the person who was working with Mike at the state DSCC, which works to ensure a Democratic state Senate majority in New York. And um, I was just like, mentioning, I was like, hey, by the way, like, Mike should come by the happy hour sometime. Like, I think you'd have a good time. And that's that's Gianaris. That's yeah, the, yeah, yeah, Mike. And then Mike came by the happy hour. This is the socialist happy hour, as, as it's been dubbed, the weekly happy hour you host in New York. Yeah, like, you'd be quite surprised at, like, how many politicians you can hang out with or you're just like, hey, like, you want to chill? I don't know. Like, so you invited, you invited the state senator to the happy hour. He showed up. And so you got to know him that way. Yeah, we just chilled. That's That worked. And so once the, once Democrats took over, you were able to get a meeting to talk about AVR. Yeah. Is that like a big thing, like getting a meeting? I, I don't, I I don't know. know. That, I, have no, I have no idea how I would do it. So that's, I mean, maybe. Uh, this is this is the mystery, right? Maybe there's less mystery to it than someone typically thinks. Yeah, there, I think there's like less mystery to, to a lot of this stuff. Like, you know, one of the things that we found is like, you know, there's like a sort of newfangled style of like progressive data organization that's like, we're going to get VC money. And then, blah, blah, blah. and it's like, I just find that, you know, I'm like a very like, socialist critique of this type of stuff where it's like, I think money like really makes a lot of this stuff like a lot harder to do. You know, it like, it makes all these relationships much more strained. And so that's why when we're working with like, you know, grassroots partners, we're just like, yeah, don't worry about that. Like, just worry about like what you need and we'll get that to you. So when you're actually working on that campaign, were you polling it? Were you buttonholing other politicians and talking to them about it? What were you doing exactly? Oh, dude, I was, I was really a jackass of all trades on that, you know? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, seriously, like, we did do polling on it. Uh, we did research on sort of the impacts of AVR. I, like, held a press conference with Scott Stringer, who's our comptroller at the the city council uh, building. I, I, like, sort of, like, spoke at a rally for AVR. Any aspect of AVR, 
I hopped into. I testified on the state Senate. I worked with partners to coordinate in terms of like getting calls to the state senators, getting calls to the assembly members, uh, had a ton of meetings with different state senators and assembly members, you know, worked with different organizations, built up coalitions. Like we, we really did, uh, you know, like we tried to be involved in, in every aspect of the, the fight that it made sense for us to be involved in. Is that the sort of thing think tanks ordinarily do or is that is that something, I mean, running an actual campaign for a policy or... Uh, well, we, we, I wouldn't say we f fully ran the campaign. Or helping to run a campaign like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were, a, I would say AVR now is a, a coalition partner. Yeah, that's that's pretty, I think it's like pretty standard. It tends to be something like a little bit bigger organizations yeah. do. Um, so is it like everyone gets on a phone call and said, here are all the different groups, there's a conference call and they say, data for progress, here's what we need you to do. Or like, how do you figure out your role in that? Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, like there was, there were definitely like, big meetings with like lots of different organizations and coalitions within um, New York. And there were very regular check-ins in terms of, of what we were going on. And like there were, you know, policy disagreements um, within progressive groups that we worked to settle, which was, you know, definitely, definitely a part of it. And I think we all, we all ended up coming in together on, on stuff in the end. But yeah, I mean, like it's, it was a pretty standard legislative advocacy project. And like, you know, we released several reports. Um, you know, we had, we had a couple of letters that we circulated to the different legislators. So we had a letter on AVR now that, uh, that was sort of like sort of um, co-anchored by AVR now that was on AVR and racial justice. And obviously to do that, we ended up forming coalitions with like a lot of racial justice organizations like uh, Demos to push for AVR. So we, you know, like we would have like calls to make sure everyone's like comfortable with this letter and who wants to sign on to the letter and like which local individuals want to sign on to the letter. Like, yeah. So there's a lot of coordination and then everyone goes off and does their part of it. Yeah. And I mean, we'd have calls and to, to check in on like, you know, which days do we want to send the most calls and like, how do we send tweets yeah. to the legislators? Like, how do we apply as much pressure as possible? And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that come that's come from me in terms of the, running this organization and like the sort of view on the institutions is like, there are so many things that you have to do that like no one really ever trains you on yeah. as part of being a leftist. Like I think leftists spend a lot of time thinking about like how is Trotskyism different from Leninism? And it's like, it doesn't really tell you much um, <laughs> when you're trying to pass AVR, but, but you know, like I'm not, I'm not saying that's not useful to do. I'm saying that like there's, there tends to be a lot of sort of emotional intelligence and sort of situational intelligence that you really have to develop to build the sort of coalitions that it takes to actually like pass into law things. Yeah. And so, I mean, this bill in the end didn't pass. Well, it did uh, pass the, the Senate. Pa passed the Senate. And then there was sort of a last minute controversy about how it was written that they put it off until next session, essentially. Yeah. the I mean, the controversy was basically, there were sort of some language in the legislation that was unclear as to what it intended to do. Uh, with regards to undocumented folks who go to the DMV. And this is something that could be fixed in chapter amendments if you know anything about the legislative process. Like tons of stuff gets fixed in chapter amendments yeah. after the fact. 
Um, but what happened is there's a there's a Republican woman who is on, uh, I believe, Long Island. She's the one challenging Max Rose. Yeah. Who sort of used this as a chance to like sort of demagogue and raise her profile. Yeah. Um, and sort of like, oh, look at this thing that they're going to pass. They're going to try and register with the to, undocumented immigrants. They're going to yeah. try and register them to vote. And of course, everyone knew the intent was like in chapter amendments, this law get yeah banged out. But given the sort of like, you know the the state of things, uh, there was a decision to instead of doing it in chapter amendments to instead do it in January of uh, 2019. Which I mean, you can sort of understand the political logic of that. You don't want to give someone the firepower to say you voted to let you know, undocumented immigrants register. But I mean, how long had you worked on that push for on that legislative push for? How long had this campaign been going on? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, interest in like automatic voter registration in New York has been something that I've been interested in for as long as I've lived in New York and supported automatic voter registration. But, you know, laying the groundwork uh, probably started like uh, five or six months before we took the state Senate. And like, there, I don't want to like minimize in any way, like the the fact that there's like a let New York vote coalition and stuff like that. Like they're, the let New York vote coalition is focused on a broad suite of electoral reforms, whereas uh, AVR now is obviously <laughs> centered on, on one particular. But yeah, I mean, there, there was, um, there's several months. And, and I will say, like, we still do work on AVR. We're doing a ton of work studying AVR. Um, and a, a lot of that's actually involved sort of basically loaning out access to our data resources to, to academics. Quite often, I'll have better access to data resources than academics. So we're able to, like, sort of give them access to that to, to run the research they want to do on AVR. And we'll, we'll have some, there will actually be papers on AVR presented at APSA. Um, the American Political Science Association conference uh, at the end of this month that are uh, possible because of the data for progress. So I'm really excited about that. I mean, is there a, to put it bluntly, that would suck when <laughs> it didn't pass that, right? Like that was, that couldn't have been fun. Oh, I said at the time it was the worst uh, day of my life. Yeah, it's, I like called a friend that time. and was like, I'm just going to quit politics entirely. Like, really? Um, yeah. Um, just because it seemed like it's something it should pass and it just somehow like faded, conspired or. I mean, like I also didn't, I mean, it was hard because I sort of found out a lot, uh, because like when you're in the thick of it, it's like very hard to often know what's going on. Like information travels, uh, very quickly. And we, I had really thought it was like a failure of me. And I think like a lot of people who like don't like me for, for many reasons, uh, on Twitter, like decided it was a failure of me and sort of like stepping back and sort of understanding like what, what specifically went wrong and, and how we can fix it. And I, I mean, like New York will, will have AVR, but yeah, I mean, it's the legislative process is an incredibly fickle one. I want to come back to that happy hour, the socialist happy hour. I guess, I don't know if yeah. that, did you call it that or originally or what, what is, how did, was that Jonathan know. Chait who called did it that? He got really mad at it. I mean, yeah, like. So, is that so? It seems to me well, like happy hour is like a really interesting thing. Yeah. Well, so it seems like that also serves like a professional need and like a sort of an organizing niche for you, right? It's not just it's not just like a get together. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like, what is the point of the happy hour? Yeah. the The point of it is like this is like genuinely true. This is a fun thing. I was in like libertarian circles in DC and right, and like it definitely like I don't know if you know this, but like Cato Institute's like fucking loaded. And so they have like little happy hours and stuff. And it's like really useful because like if you're a libertarian, you can hang out at that. And when I came to New York, like there are sort of those, but it's like book launches and stuff. And like, I don't know, books are like kind of boring to me. 
and <laughs> I don't like to hear like lectures. And so I was like, well, what is a way that people could hang out that's like not a book launch and a lecture? And like, you know, if you go to like all the progressive stuff, it's like you have to listen through like some city council member talk for like 20 minutes. And I don't like, I don't like that, that stuff boards the shit on me. So I was like, okay, well, I'll start this happy hour that people can come to. And I was always very, very like open to people coming. I don't like want Republicans and conservatives to come because like, fuck that. But if you like believe in progressive values, it doesn't matter to me if you are like sort of a more establishment Democrat or the most DSA member of DSA member because I wanted to have a place where people could like talk through this stuff because I saw like so much of the fights on Twitter and it's just like y'all are talking past each other and you're being more of an asshole than you would be like actually sit across each other at a happy hour or something, talk at happy hour and like maybe you'll sort of get an understanding of this because there is this sense to me in politics that like a lot of people within the progressive movement very broadly, right, have these really bad faith thoughts about the way that these other people within the movement are approaching the world. And if we can sort of like get to more of an understanding of how people are coming to that, I'm not saying we can't have disagreements. I'm fine with disagreements. A lot of my life is negotiating disagreements. But what I don't think is that I don't think that like right now in a lot of instances, we're actually finding the places that people have disagreements and working through those. We're really talking past each other and talking past characters. And so I think the happy hour is still a place where like we can have like some of those discussions. To be clear, this is a weekly thing you've been throwing for how yeah, long now? I grew up in like religious circles and there's like a, a Bible verse, thou shalt not forsake the gathering of thyself together. And uh, I have some friends who do like a, a happy hour that's like, sort of modeled after mine, but like less famous people come by. I'm just <laughs> fucking with them. But like they do it like really iterantly and it's like really hard to plan around. Whereas my happy hour, like, you know, like I don't really take vacations on account of I don't really have any way to take a vacation on account of I don't like have vacation days and stuff. So I don't do that. So I only miss like one or two happy hours like a year. Um, and so it's every Thursday. So, you know, Thursday if you're near the happy hour, you can stop by. And I really think that's a core principle of it is like really doing that weekly thing. I think that's something that their church has done well. I actually like was working back on this. It has now been like more than four years. I just like that the socialist happy hour is actually an idea borrowed from like standard wonky DC think tankery that like <laughs> in the church in the church <laughs> that this is that's where that came from this is like it makes sense it's like an organizing tactic people have been getting together and talking ideas while getting drunk for on the left for centuries now so. yeah and i mean if you think about it if you like actually look at like the broad Sean McAuley theory of american politics like much of it is like trying to convince the left to adopt the tactics that the Koch brothers have used, but for good things. <laughs> In this case, getting drunk is one important tactic. All yeah. right, man. Thank All you right. for coming on. Have a great one. You too. And that is it for this week's episode of Working. As always, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. If you have questions, comments, thoughts, send them to me working at slate.com again that is working at slate.com the show is produced by jessamine molly a special thank you to justin d Wright for the ad music i'm your host jordan weissman please catch us next week
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.